Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 15 as we kind of wrap up this chapter this morning. If you need to use one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find it on page 893. So Romans 15, we're looking at verses 23 to 33. And if you're using our pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 893. So first, let me just address the elephant in the room I am fully aware that I'm dressed like your high school athletic director this morning, okay? <laughs> I get it. So we can get the jokes out of the way. That's what I'm, I'm dressed like this morning. And, but in my defense, I wear what my wife tells me. So I just have a dutiful husband. She says, wear this. I say, yes, ma'am. I put it on. So maybe my wife thinks athletic directors are sexy. So I'm, okay, I'm going to wear it. So <laughs> I'm going to stop right there. Okay. We... <laughs> We have just two weeks left in our study of Romans. So we have this morning and then next week. What I want to do is begin this morning by asking us this question. What kind of people would we be like if we really took the book of Romans seriously? What kind of people would we be if we took the book of Romans seriously? I imagine there could be a couple of options. You could say, well, we would really know the doctrine of justification by faith. After all, it is from the book of Romans that the great reformer Martin Luther discovered this amazing doctrine and set his heart ablaze, and we have the Protestant Reformation as a result of that. Justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. Justification by faith, that's what Romans is about. On the other hand, we might say we would be a people with a lot more doctrinal clarity. It seems like all theological roads in the Bible goes to Romans. We have doctrines of God, man, sin, judgment, creation, redemption, the nature of the church, the Christian's hope, the nature of Christ, the work of Christ, the work of the Spirit, justification, sanctification, glorification, election. It's all here in the book of Romans. Every theological theme we find in Scripture somehow finds expression in this one book. So doctrinal clarity after we've studied this book for over a year, that certainly could be it. What about Christian living? The second conceptual half of the book of Romans, after all, is fully caught up with how do we live together in community? We've spent weeks talking about that. That second half begins in Romans 12, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. So Christian living seems to be the theme if we took this book seriously. Justification by faith, doctrinal clarity, Christian living. I think all those probably could be true as we think of the book of Romans. But I think those are all just parts of a larger picture. And I think the answer we find is implicitly in Romans 15, verses 23 to 33. Now, I say implicitly because... After all, we are done with the explicit teaching portions of the book of Romans. It's also called the didactic portion of the book. Paul is done talking about it. And now as he's winding down, I think he provides the answer simply by the way Paul is living and is anticipating that the Roman Christians will join in him in how they live. And, and that is to be a missionally minded people. Now, let me pause here because if you've been in a church in a while, you might be hearing, when I say emissionally-minded people, you might be thinking emissions-minded people. And you, you know what I mean, emissions-minded people. They say, yes, we are into missions at this church. We go on missions trips. We got a missions pastor. We have missions conferences. We have so many flags in our global map. It looks like a wind farm. We have bumper stickers that says our missions budget is bigger than your missions budget. We're in the missions. And let me be clear, that's a good thing. Well, not the bumper, that, that's kind of snarky, but bumper sticker, but, but we do want to preserve a sense of, of 
crossing linguistic boundaries, crossing uh, cultural boundaries, not for two weeks or two months or two years, but for a lifetime, 20 years or more. We want to preserve that unique place that missionaries occupy in the life of the church. That's very true. But if that's your only lens to understand missions, you can easily have this mindset that missions is something that other people do over there, where there is, and we just simply support the work. A missionally-minded people, while it includes being missions-minded, understands that to be a Christian is to be on mission. That every Christian, it is to be a heralder, a messenger of the gospel. That's what we do. And we have a purpose. We have a purpose, and that is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us from darkness into light, to make disciples of the nations, and thereby maximize the glory that God receives. I think we see that in Paul's interactions with the Roman Christians. So what we're going to do is we're going to stand up, I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to look at the three attributes of a missionally-minded people, the three attributes of a missionally-minded people in Romans 15, verses 23 to 33. So with that, please stand as the, for the reading of God's word. Paul writes in Romans 15, beginning at verse 23, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to to also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and I have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. So we see clearly in these 10 verses, Paul is talking about being a missionally minded people, and he lets us know three of those attributes, our identity, our apologetic, and our power. Our identity is very clear. It's who we are, our apologetic. If you're not familiar with that word, it doesn't mean we go around saying sorry. It just means an an apologetic is a reason to believe something, a ground for why something is true. So we have our apologetic. And then finally, our power. We'll look at them one at a time. So there's the first one. You see our identity. And I'm just going to overview them quickly, and then we'll dive into them a little bit more in depth. Our identity is to be, as as a missionally-minded people, our identity is as a church people. Missionally minded people get this covenant community is God's plan of the ages. However encouraging or frightening it might be, in God's great plan, historical redemptive plan, we are plan A. There is no plan B. It is us. This is God's shot to redeem the world. Look to the person to your left. Look to the person on your right. That's who's got to do the job. 
Let me read to you what Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. It's just mind-blowing about the church. Paul writes, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, through the church, so that through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. It's not through Billy Graham or Franklin Graham. It's not through your favorite parachurch ministry. It is through who? The church. That the manifold, the many-faceted, the wonderful, complex wisdom of God might be shown off to the world. So the church is a display of God's glory. That's our identity. The second attribute is our apologetic a missionally-minded people are evangelistic, they're compassionate, and they are a grateful people because this, this new community gets that God is creating a new humanity that has different values, different priorities, and a different goal than the world around them. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old man with its practices and then you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. We are a fundamentally different people. So our identity is that we are a church. Our apologetic is the love we have for one another. And third and finally, the attribute is our power. A missionally minded people are a praying people because we know that it is a supernatural work of God. That it is not our, our nice facilities, our fancy programs, and all those things. It is a work of God. So prayer is what powers us. In every letter Paul writes, here's one from Colossians. Listen to his prayer, verse 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. If you're learning, trying to learn how to pray well or better, just read Paul's prayer. So, Paul, what are you praying for? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why are you praying this, Paul, verse 10? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And you're bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So those are the three attributes, our identity, our apologetic, and our power. Let's look at each of them individually. Number one, our identity. A missionally-minded people are a church people. As we said last week, Paul conceived of his work for Christ not simply in terms of his individual ministry, what he was about, but what he did in light of planting healthy, flourishing churches. You can dip into last week's passage a little bit. Look at verse 19 when Paul says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Wow. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And in verse 23 he says this morning, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. So if you're, learning, you're new to studying your Bible, this is how you do it. You just use the grammar. What is the antecedent for the phrase these regions? What's he talking about? He's talking about all of Jerusalem and Elycrium, this entire swath of land. He says, I've got no more work. I've done it all, this whole area taken up by the gospel. That is an amazing thing for Paul to be able to say that. The only way he could possibly make these claims was by seeing the work of the churches he planted as the culmination of his gospel ministry, his calling to the, to the Gentiles. The only way the apostle to the Gentiles could see that he had fulfilled the ministry God gave to him, it couldn't have been by having individual conversations and con converts of everyone in the Mediterranean. That's impossible. 
There's no way any one man could do that. So how could Paul say these things, that he's completed the work, there's nothing else left to do? It's because in this entire area, all this region from Jerusalem to Illyricum, he planted thriving, healthy, well, depending on what letters you're reading, he planted churches that were in various spectrums of health throughout this whole area. He planted the church, local churches. A couple years ago in our series, uh, it was in the fall of 2021, we did a series called, Who Do Christians Say, Think They Are? And one of my arguments was, uh, just as a bunch of lions, when lions together, the plural for lions, the collective noun is what? A pride. And when you have a bunch of birds together, they are a what? A flock. And when you have a bunch of geese together, they are a what? Oh, you're smarter than first hour. This is where I lost them. All right, let's see how good you are. A bunch of tigers in a pack are a what? No, they're not. I know. I, I realized as I came out, there's not a pack. Do you remember? An ambush. That tells you something about tigers. But my point was this. A, 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 the collective noun for a Christian is not Christians. Grammatically, yes, but conceptually, no. It is church. We are not just a group of individually like-minded individuals who happen to love Jesus. We are a church. The church is an embassy. I made the argument that churches are embassies of another kingdom that oversees, that regulates, that authorizes ambassadors and sends them out to represent another nation, another king in foreign soil. And Paul says, my work is done. Because these churches have been planted, these embassies all throughout, and these embassies have ambassadors and they're going everywhere. And through the people of God, seeing themselves as part of this new community, not just in spiritual ways, but also very practical ways. Look at verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey. That English phrase, helped on my journey, that entire phrase is one word in the original language. Propempo. That one Greek word translates to English, help me on my journey. And by the time Paul uses that word here in Romans, amongst the Christians, Propempo had a technical idea that you are going to provide whatever help is necessary for the gospel work, whether that was financial, whether that was spiritual, or practical, like housing, transportation, in some cases, security escort. So Paul says, I know you're going to help me in this. And as an example of that, look at that. He talks about the Macedonians and the, Achaia, the Achaeans. We can get back to this. And so, uh, let me back up to there. So the Macedonians and Achaeans, it was this region that included the churches of the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Corinthians, and the Bereans. Those were those churches. And they were rallying support for the Jerusalem saints, the church in Jerusalem. Here's the thing that's fascinating. Even though the Jerusalem church was Jewish, and these were all Gentiles, they didn't care. They were going to come behind these brothers and sisters in Christ and help them out. Now, you're sitting here going, well, big deal. That's what you should be doing. That's because we don't realize the strong ethnic animosity and national animosities that existed between these groups of people. It's fascinating. I mean, as Americans, we have a sense of national pride, but we're not nationalistic. You don't know nationalism to go to Europe. I remember my wife. What country did they get mad? The Greece people get mad at you for visiting first? Is it? So when my wife was in Greece, they got mad at her because she visited Turkey before Greece. 
that's how nationalistic, how dare you go someplace else before you come here. Like we're second tier. That's how nationalistic they were. And so for these Thessalonians, these the Macedonians and the Acadians and these regions, to care for the Jerusalem church was a testimony to that world that something weird is happening here. Something weird, and that's because these Gentiles didn't see themselves as Thessalonians or Philippians or Gentiles. They saw themselves as the church. That was their identity, the ones called out by God from the world. That's one of the the understandings of the word church. And this identity of theirs transcended cultural, linguistic, ethnic, monetary boundaries. And Paul said something similar to the Galatians in Galatians 3.28. There is no more Jew or Gentile. There's no more slave or free. There's no more man or woman, but only but the people of God in Christ. What Paul is saying there, he's not saying those distinctions aren't important. He's not saying that those distinctions don't have a, 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 a impact in the way we do our lives. What he is saying is that in Christ, there's a new dimensional reality to our identity that is far more important and significant than any of these temporal differences. See, this is the different the danger we need to watch out for. There's always two ditches, right? There is the ditch of saying the only thing that matters is that we're in Christ and nothing else matters, right? There's that ditch that, that as Christians we can fall into that ditch. There's also the ditch that also says, hey, the only thing that does matter is our temporal identity of the things of this world. So my race, my ethnicity, my nation, all that, that's what matters. Those are two ditches and the gospel doesn't uh, uh, hold to any one of those. What the gospel says is, You have an identity in Christ that transcends this identity, but this identity matters because you are embodied to reach that world. And so we have to be careful of not saying, crashing into one ditch or the other. And so Paul's not getting rid of distinctions. He's saying there is a reality to your identity that transcends all those other distinctions. That is the way that you can reach those very people groups, so to speak. But a sure sign that you are in Christ is that you no longer take your final and, and, and ultimate identity from the things of this world. Right? So your race, your class, your wealth, your ethnicity, your job, your family, your popularity, that's not what defines you. Let me put it this way. That's not what determines you. It shapes you for sure. Your history, your ethnicity, your experiences shape you. They ought to. But they don't define you. It is what Christ has done that defines you, and he uses those very temporal things as part of his plan to reach a temporal world. Friends, one of the greatest upsides to crisis is that it helps us see these differences and distinctions and, and, and really in comparison to what really matters. So let me give you an illustration. Probably the biggest crisis in my adult lifetime was uh, the September 11th, 2001 attacks that we had on our nation. Many of you are old enough to remember that. I was about 30 years old when it took place. And I remember as I was watching this all on the television as the Twin Towers had collapsed and the ensuing chaos that took place. But I also saw something else that was almost in real time as we were watching it on the news. In the midst of it all, you saw something amazing. Homeless men digging out from the rubble, Wall Street stockbrokers, construction workers carrying rabbis to safety, a young police, a police officer being tended to, an injured police officer being attended to by young black men, a hot dog vendor directing traffic for the emergency vehicles. It was nothing but chaos and beauty. 
And as I watch these scenes unfold, nobody cared who was rich or poor. Nobody cared who was white or black. Nobody cared who was educated, uneducated. Everyone was in one of two categories. Everyone was in one of two categories. Those who were safe and those who needed to be saved. And that's all that mattered. Missionally minded people realize that because of what Christ has done on the cross, we are safe amidst the worst crisis the world will ever know. And that the church is the hub where God gathers those people who are now safe in Christ to figure out how do we go back into the world and rescue those who need to be saved. That is our defining identity. The other things of this world, they play a role, but they are not defi- they're not definitive. We also don't want to say that none of that matters, only this matters, because God uses both of those for his glory. Missionally minded people get that in the church. That's why we should be as radically different as the world around us, but the one common denominator we share trumps every other differences we might have. And so we link arms together and say, because the crisis we face together is bigger than the differences we have, that's what matters. That is our identity. Not a collection, as I said, of like-minded persons who happen to love Jesus. God is not interested in saving and getting a group of like-minded persons. You never see that in the Bible. What you do see in the Bible is God is always making a people, and that's very different than a collection of persons. He's creating a people that has a, a, a corporate identity, a corporate commitment, responsibilities, and obligations to themselves and to the world and to the one who has called them to be a people together. 1 Peter chapter 2.9, if you're a note-taker, write that down. It's all over that text. Peter's pulling Old Testament terminology and applying it to New Testament saints, Jews, Gentiles, the whole bunch. And he says, you are a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You are a people called to proclaim his, his excellencies, taking you from darkness into light. That is very different than being just persons hanging out together. We are a people, a new identity. A missionally-minded people see themselves as the church. Now, what is our apologetic? What is our reason for believing that? What is the way we communicate to the world that this reality takes place, that amidst the greatest crisis there is safety, and that's our apologetic. That's the second attribute of a missionally-minded people, and that, that, that we are evangelistic, we are compassionate, and we are grateful. In other words, if you are a Christian, you're well-rounded in your faith, where there's, you're bearing fruit of the gospel. And so you are excited to tell people about what the Lord has done. That's the evangelism thing. You are humbled by the grace that has been given to you, and that's the compassion. So you have hum- humility towards others who have need, and you are grateful because all this was done at no cost to us, but great cost to him. And the, the gratitude thing is so important, friends. If you've been here long enough to remember our study of Philippians, the three themes that ran through Philippians was joy, humility, and gratitude. A grateful people are a generous people. A grateful people are a forgiving people. A grateful people are a patient people. A grateful people, they just bear fruit of the Spirit. And and we see that in our text, right? So implicitly, verse 24 and 28, Paul just assumes safely so, that these Roman Christians are going to help him on his way. He doesn't even have to, he's not even trying to persuade them. He just knows it's going to happen. And we see it, and with good cause probably, look, Paul says from verses 26 and 27, the contribution of the Macedonians and the Achaeans. 
And what I want you to do, keep your finger in Romans, and I want you to go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's a fantastic passage of Scripture. Um, you know, the, the great thing about the Bible is we tend to think of it as linear, right? So the events of Romans takes place before the events of First and Second Corinthians on, that, that kind of thing. That's not how it works, right? The, the Bible is the, the first, I've, call, I've heard it called the first hyperlinked book that is out there. So what I want to do is I want to read you a bit of the backstory of the very offering that Paul is saying, the very aid he's taking to Jerusalem. I want to read you a little of the backstory behind how he got that, that, that aid and that offering to take to Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. I'm going to read four verses here. Paul writes this. We want you, so he's writing to the Corinthians, getting them on board to contribute to Jerusalem. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Okay, so, so what's that grace of God that's been given among the churches of at Macedonia? Here it comes in verse 2. It's not what you expect. For in a severe test of affliction... Okay, their abundance of joy, another phrase that doesn't you think would follow aff affliction, and their extreme poverty. Okay, stop right there. What in the world? A severe test of affliction. So it's not just affliction. It's severe affliction, an abundance of joy, and extreme poverty. I don't think in our modern cat culture we have any way to see how those reconcile. Because... We can imagine abundance joy when there's flourishing and things are going well. But did you notice what Paul is saying is happening to, to these churches in Macedonia? Severe affliction. Extreme poverty. And an abundance of joy. And what was the result of all this? What was the result of all this? Uh, and the first two have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. What in the world? It would be like commiserating, complaining, all this griping. No. And I know I just like butchered this, so now you have no idea how to read this text because I kept stopping. So let's read it with that context. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, look at verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were begging Paul, please let me take part in this, in this, in this effort that I have no, I'm not worthy to contribute. And really, I'm in extreme poverty, so I don't have much to contribute anyway. But I want to give this. That's some of the backstory to the offering that Paul is now bringing to the saints at Jerusalem. Can you imagine the watching world? What? I mean, just doesn't make sense. How would you counsel somebody in a severe test of, a severe test of affliction in extreme poverty? Would you say, hey, man, go give a lot to the offering? No. But they were like, I am begging you to allow me to take a part of what God is doing by making this contribution. One of our strongest apologetics to a watching world is not just how we love them and try and share the gospel with them, but how we love and care for one another in compassion and gratitude. That's powerful. So that's why missions has to be more than, it's easy to love and send money over there. It's hard to love the person sitting next to you here, isn't it? But that's where real missions is seen too. Jesus said in John 13, 34, they will know, speaking of the world, you are my disciples by what? Your love for one another. Friends, missions work 
is not simply evangelism and outreach to the lost. It can be and is compassion and mercy and generosity towards our brothers and sisters in Christ right here. I love particularly verse 27. You can go back to Romans. Verse 27, Paul says, For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. So he's thinking about, remember, think about what we just read in 2 Corinthians. True spiritual obligations, notice, are both necessary and yet are not compulsory. They're necessary, but they cannot be compulsory. It is the overflow of the gratitude, of a grateful response to what God in Christ has done for you that changes your heart to make you a grateful person. The church father, Augustine, said it best. And I love when, when people say fortune cookie type things. They're just, what? But it makes so much sense. God demands the kind of love that can never be demanded. God demands the kind of love that can never be demanded of someone. But when it exists and where it exists, it's a thing of beauty and the strongest testimony to a living Savior in your midst. Friends, our giving to the cause of the gospel can be a direct reflection of our actual grasp of the gospel. Now, to be clear, the immediate context Paul is talking about is financial giving. That's obvious. But I want you to realize that this principle exceeds finances and can be applied in so many aspects of your lives. There's 10,000 ways we can give ourselves to gospel work and give ourselves away for gospel work. But the context is financial here. When you recognize what has been given you, you have no struggle in giving in return. I mean, and that is the real point of what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that I read a few minutes ago. The Corinthians, Paul's argument is the Corinthians owe, owe the poor, not because of the poor, but because they owe Christ. And they will give because they know how much Christ gave them. And they will continue to give generously because they, can, they know they can rely on God to keep giving to them. So, I kind of have a rule. Um, If you've been here a while, you know I never preach on giving, so this is not intended to be a giving message. And my general rule is never preach on giving unless giving is good. So I'm glad that this text happened now, right? Um, So giving is good. So I I I can speak authoritatively with this and not try to guilt you into this. But I can say this. Your bank records, your transactions, is the literal evidence of whether or not you grasp the gospel. Let me explain before you like start writing on the card that you, you want to talk to me about this. Um, so there, I read um, this anecdotal story. I, I imagine it could be true, don't know. It was about a congressional chaplain. You know, Congress has a chaplain. And one of the senators at this time was a high-powered senator, you know, sat on some committees, chaired even a few committees, said to the chaplain, hey, chaps, I need some prayer. So the chaplain said, well, what, what's going on? How can I pray for you? He says, well, when I started off in my political career, I was, you know, I was a young man. I was a lawyer. I was in law, and I had a lot of student debt. It was hard to make ends meet. I was living hand to mouth, but I had joy in giving to the work of the Lord. I made it my mark to get at 10% and sometimes a little bit above that. And even though it was hard, I had such joy in doing it. And so the chaplain said, well, what's the problem? He says, well, it's, it's been decades now, obviously, and if I keep up to that, 
I don't, honestly, I don't know if I can give away hundreds of thousands of dollars. I just can't do that. So can you pray for me? So the chaplain said, I would love to. So he puts his hand on the senator. And he just prays, Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Would you take away 98% of this man's income so he lives hand to mouth again and knows the joy of giving to your kingdom work? Amen. (laughs) Not what the senator expected. But so true. But notice in that story, what I like about it is that it's not about the amount. It was the heart. And so this chaplain's praying, God would rather have 10 bucks joyously given because of the, of the work of the gospel in your life than your $10,000 begrudgingly put into a plate. Because when a heart gives with gratitude and joy, it is the evidence that that heart understands what's been given to them. And it's the overflowing response of gratitude that shows there's a, there's a new humanity, a changed heart. That speaks volumes to the world around you. And so back to this giving that Paul's talking about, to be clear, this is not an act of political expediency. This is not the nation of Greece giving to the nation of Israel. That's not what's going on. This is not a social justice act, some redistribution of wealth from the rich to the poor. Remember in 2 Corinthians 8, it was literally the poor who were giving to the poor. So it's not a redistribution of wealth. It's not an anti-racist contribution from the Gentiles to the Jews to smooth things over. What this is is purely and fully a giving and offering motivated and fueled by the gospel. Converted pagans giving to the covenant people. The beneficiaries of the gospel giving back to the benefactors of the gospel. That's what was going on here. And so the three attributes of a missionally minded people, our identity is we are the church. And we see ourselves not as just individuals doing our own thing, nor as a collective hive mind, but a redeemed people that is diverse but unified. And I've said oftentimes the church ought to reflect the Trinity, that there's unity and diversity in community. And our apologetic to the world, the proof that the gospel works is how we love one another, whether they're overseas or across the sanctuary. And finally, our power to live out that apologetic in light of our identity is prayer. You see that in verse 30 to 33. Notice in these four verses, Paul lists for us the appeal to prayer, the tenacity of prayer, the content of prayer, and the goal to prayer. Let's look at them quickly, each one. Number one, the appeal to prayer. So there in verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, how? By our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason Paul or any one of us can even go and pray is because of what Christ has done. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The reason we have this privilege, friends, is because of what Jesus has done. Nothing else. But I also love right there in verse 30, immediately Paul mentions the love of the Spirit because sometimes it's not a matter of us not wanting to pray. It's just sometimes we just don't know what to pray for or how to do it. And so Paul is reminding us that the Spirit of God has a ministry to us even here. Remember a few chapters earlier. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. How? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for 
words. So the appeal to prayer is based on this privilege that every one of us has to go before the very throne of grace. Secondly, Paul talks about the tenacity of prayer. You see that there, right, in the text? Strive with me. That word strive could be translated as well, fight alongside me, contend with me. Friends, prayer will not, it does not come easy. It just doesn't. Now, if it does to you, it's because you've, you've probably done it for such a long time. You, it, it's, that's just what it is. It doesn't come easy for me. It hasn't, never has. And I've always found it instructive, and I've talked about this, that when I look in the Gospels, you never see Jesus break a sweat when he does a miracle. Like, you never see Jesus come across a blind man and go, all right, I gotta, I'm going to make him help see. I'm going to help him see, so I better get at it here. All right, see. That doesn't happen. He just sees a blind man says, see. He hears a deaf man. Here. He sees a dead man. Come out. Sees people starving. Have some fish. Doesn't break a sweat. Doesn't work out to it. Does nothing. Walks on water. No problem. But notice what Hebrews 5, 7 says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He can raise the dead, walk on water, and restore sight. He doesn't even think twice about it. But when, when, when Scripture actually talks about his prayer life, he says with, with cries and tears. I always found it instructive that if the Son of God himself put labored in prayer that way, probably there's a good chance we're going to have to pick up our game. So Paul says the tenacity of prayer, you've got to fight. And then, then he goes on to the content of prayer, and notice what the content is. It's gospel work. Look at Paul's two requests. To be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that the service to Jerusalem would be acceptable. So what he's talking about is the offering he's bringing. And the reason that's important is that, two reasons. Number one, if the Jerusalem church and the saints of Jerusalem accept the offering, what they're saying is that's an endorsement of Paul's ministry as bearing fruit. Because there were some in the Jerusalem church that were saying, hey, Paul's a, vocal, a small minority, but vocal, that was teaching that Paul was teaching against Moses, the laws, and the traditions. And so in some of his letters, you, you see these people following him around, challenging him. We actually read some of it in Romans 12 and 15, the weaker brothers. So for the Jerusalem church to accept this money was a tacit admission that Paul's ministry is indeed bearing fruit, and we receive that. Secondly, that would have meant... For the Jewish Christians who were ra- grappling with the gospel and what, all the barriers it was bringing down, that there's no more us and them. There's no, much, there's no longer the haves and the have-nots. There's no Jews and Gentiles. It's just Christian. The family of God, what God is doing. And so in Paul's prayer request to them was that, A, that these people could not stop the gift from being delivered, and in some cases they were unbelievers, and B, that the believers would actually receive it. So Paul's prayers here and everywhere else in the Scriptures is for gospel work. Friends, do you realize if you studied, and the reason I'm hedging is because I did this research and I couldn't find it again, but I remember the, the conclusions. If you studied all the prayers of the New Testament, all of them, the, oh, so let me pause, the, in the epistles, so after the, the gospels, all the prayers beyond the gospels, so all the letters of the, the New Testament, there is only one prayer for our physical health and well-being. 3 John 2. Of all the prayers prayed, 
Every other prayer in the New Testament besides prayers of thanksgiving and gratitude are prayers for boldness in gospel work, the advancement of the kingdom, and that the believer's growth in holiness, sanctification, and service to God. Only one is praying about Aunt Martha's knee or this thing I got going on or this cold I have. Here's a thought experiment. If we were to examine your prayers, would the ratio be the same as the New Testament? Or would it be the opposite? I'm not saying don't pray for Aunt Martha's knee. I'm not saying don't pray for your sick friend. I'm saying can we get your prayers to be a little bit more proportionate to what Scripture teaches us? Because there's a good chance you've been socialized into prayer by listening to other Christians pray rather than let Scripture shape the way you pray. Because when you look at the prayers of Scripture, it's all about gospel work. And from Paul, you know his list of of, uh, abuses and injuries and sicknesses and all of that. But he constantly prays for gospel work. That should be the content of our prayer. And then finally, the goal of our prayer, we see that in verse 32. Prayer is not about bending the will of God to ours, but aligning our will to his. So here's how this works, going backwards. The goal of our prayers, Lord, would you align my will so it lines up with the way you want to pray and that the content of my prayer, now that my will is aligned with you, would be gospel work more often than not and that I would be faithful striving towards it because you are at work in this world and I have the privilege to come before you because of Christ. That's how this works. Now, friends, it would be a missed opportunity if I did not take this this moment to tell you about the upcoming day of prayer that we as a church are planning for May, uh, Friday, May 26th. So that's just a little more than two weeks from today. Since January, we've been speaking a little bit about our five-year initiative, our strategic plan, or we call it the five-year focus. It's called Together for the Gospel. And in it, as elders, we realize, look, all the plans in the world don't mean anything if God is not going to bless this thing. Even though our desires are good and true to be better at discipling our community, create a culture of care and, and, and counseling for one another, uh, reach out into the community with the gospel. All those are gospel goods. God's going to bless that. He's already told us to do that, so why pray? Because number one, he commands us to pray. He wants that fellowship in prayer with us, and he wants us to know the joy of answered prayer. And so we decided to set aside a day of prayer on Friday, May 26. And so this is how a little bit of how it's going to work. You can just go onto our website, um, cccc3cslh.org. Or you can see it right there, right? There's the thing right there. Um, if that's too difficult, because like even I couldn't say it, you just have to advance, register for an event. This is our registration page. And you just hit here, day of prayer. Now, because this is through our, our realm system, you've got to have a profile, but it's going to kind of look like this. You fill out who you are. You hit the next button. And then our desire is for 12 hours continuously on our campus from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. just to have people praying, man. So we want you to sign up for a time block. You can sign up for as many as you like, but the goal is so that we can have continuous prayer on our campus. Moms, dads, this is like, here's a discipleship opportunity. I'm just throwing it right to the numbers there. Sign up with your kids. We're going to have a prayer guide. Oh, I forgot to bring it with me. We have a prayer guide that will walk you through all the things we, we can pray about. Your 30 minutes are going to go by like that. So parents, bring your kids. Community groups, come together. Take a, take a block together. Um, high school groups, sign up with your small group. Aletheia, come as friend groups. But just sign up, and on that day when you show up, um, we're going to have basically the fireside room, which is on the other side of that wall, the bridge, and the rooms in the counseling center open for prayer so that we can strive together for gospel work that God has called us together as a church to do. If we took Romans seriously, we want to be a missionally-minded 
people. And that means to have a sense of what our identity is. Not to be like our culture, consumeristic and individualistic, but a redeemed people with obligations, commitments, and responsibilities to the world. We want our apologetic to show the world that this is actually the real deal seen in the way we love one another. And we want that power to come from our prayer, not from our programs. However slick some of our graphics might be, that's not the thing that's going to do the work. It is the prayers of the body of Christ on behalf of gospel work. In a sense, friends, what, what we're calling you to do in Laguna Hills is the same kind of thing Paul's calling Rome to do for Rome. And we want to do it together because we want to be a missionally minded people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I'm always surprised as we look into it and sometimes look at other portions of the New Testament, so much of the backstory, so much of what you are doing is implicit as much as it is explicit. Father, would you continue to transform us for your glory and in that transformation it benefits, it's for our good. We want people to make much of Jesus Christ, so we need to make much of him in our own hearts. Help us to turn from sin, as Paul said, put away the old self and put on the new self made in the image of, of, of Jesus Christ. That cannot happen unless your spirit is working. And so, Holy Spirit, find us vessels that can be molded and shaped that we might be more like Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.